you're having trouble finding the book of Zechariah, it is the next to last of the minor prophets, which means it's the next to last book in the Old Testament. So if you can find the Gospels, find Matthew, and then just dip back three to six pages back to the Old Testament. Last chapter in the book of Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 14. Let me read, starting in verse 9 through verse 15. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one and his name the only one. All the land will be changed into a plain from Geba to Rimmon, south of Jerusalem, But Jerusalem will rise and remain on its site from Benjamin's gate as far as the place of the first gate to the corner gate and from the tower of Hananel to the king's wine presses. People will live in it. And there will no longer be a curse. For Jerusalem will dwell in security. Now this will be the plague which the Lord will strike all the peoples who have gone to war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they stand on their feet. And their eyes will rot in their sockets. And their tongue will rot in their mouth. And it will come about in that day that a great panic from the Lord will fall on them. And they will seize one another's hand. And the hand of one will be lifted against the hand of another. Judah also will fight at Jerusalem. And the wealth of all the surrounding nations will be gathered, gold and silver and garments, in great abundance. So also, like this plague, will be the plague on the horse, the mule, the camel, the donkey, and all the cattle that will be in those camps. This is the living word of the living God. I should have warned you. This is like an R-rated for violence passage. Um, And we'll come to that. And I trust honor the Lord as we make our way through it. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, we thank you for the one who is Lord of all. He's coming. His feet will touch on the Mount of Olives and the Mount of Olives will be split from east to west and move north and south, creating a valley of escape for your people. And he will rule Not on the Mount of Olives, but on the Davidic throne in the city of Jerusalem. And that city will be high and lifted up as our king is high and lifted up. And he will be victorious forever. And we think about all the things in this world in which righteousness currently doesn't seem to be victorious. And we weep with joy in anticipation of what is coming through our king. Might that comfort our hearts this morning. And might that give us confidence in you. We have sung about this magnificent King and Lord in multiple ways this morning, culminating in that great hymn, Christ Victorious. Oh, He is. He is. And He will be. Might you make us to be confident of that this morning. And confident in such a way that we would live without fear, anxiety, worry, despondency, discouragement. 
but that we would live triumphantly in our Savior who is coming as King. We pray these in His name. Amen. A husband was complaining to his wife a few years ago, a number of years ago now, about their children, wondering, and see if this lament sounds familiar. I wonder if they will ever grow up. The wife didn't respond to the lament, and she simply said, just a moment, and she turned and walked out of the room and came back to the room carrying a well-worn, frayed, kind of falling apart box. And inside that box, she pulled out a diary that was yellowed and tired. It was her diary from the year 1945. She read this entry from a particularly bad day in high school, May 7. Terrible time in school. Flunked the math quiz. Nancy bragged about her new bike. Why can't I have one? I am bored. 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 All caps. I don't even supposed to do that, but it was her diary, so she could. Nothing ever important happens to us. Oh, yes. P.S. Today is V.E. Day. The war is over in Europe. Nothing ever important happens. Oh, isn't it true that at times it is hard to accurately assess a circumstance? In war, the loss of a particular battle tempts one to think the war is lost. In culture wars, the loss of a moral skirmish tends to make us think that all is lost morally within the culture. And in the absence of Christ's return, it is tempting to think... I just wonder if he really is ever coming back. Those thoughts aren't new. The Israelites also experienced those thoughts and those temptations. And though as we come to the book of Zechariah, the nation had returned from the Babylonian captivity. They'd been back in the land now. By the time we get to Zechariah chapter 14, somewhere between 15 and 20 years, they'd been there a substantial amount of time. In fact, they'd been there longer than that, probably uh, 30 years-ish. And they'd been there a long time, and yet there was still opposition from outside their land. And even a hundred years later, the city of Jerusalem still was not populated properly. It was sparsely populated. And in fact, in order to, to fill up the city of Jerusalem, they, they drafted people to move back to the city. So one out of ten people from the neighboring tribes were conscripted and told to move back to Jerusalem to fill it up a hundred years after the fact. Nobody wants to be in Jerusalem. Nobody wants to live there. There's opposition. There's fighting. It's difficult. It's hard. Yes, they were rebuilding the temple, but even the the rebuilt temple just was not what it seemed to have been previously. Haggai chapter 2 tells us that people, when they saw the going up of the new temple, they wept, not out of joy that the temple was going up, but they wept because it paled in comparison to the Solomonic temple. And so they had to wonder, how's this all going to play out? And it is in that context that Zechariah is given a prophecy from God to encourage the Israelites to faithfulness, faithfulness to finish rebuilding the temple, faithfulness to continue persevering with him, faithfulness to continue to be hopeful in him. And the culmination of that prophecy is in Zechariah chapter 14, the return of Christ, the return of the Messianic King. Now, over the last two weeks, we've been looking at this chapter and reveling in the coming of Christ and the coming of the one who will sit on the Davidic throne and the one who will rule over all and the Lord will be the only one. There will be no other king. 
And this morning we're going to observe the Messianic King coming back in another particular way. And we will see him in these verses, verses 10 through 15, in this way. Christ, the King, will come as victor. He's not just king. He is victor. Now, there is a sense in which any king, every king, is a victor. But every king or so-called king eventually loses an election or every king eventually is deposed by someone else, sometimes overthrown, sometimes even overthrown from within his own family and killed. Some just die natural deaths, but every king will stop being king. Every king at some point will no longer be victory, but not this king. This king is a conquering and victorious king and will always be so. And these verses, verses 10 through 15, reaffirm some of the realities of the conquest of Jesus, the messianic king that we've already seen. But we're going to see that even more graphic language as we've had as we have read the text already this morning. How will Christ be the victor? In what ways is Christ a conquering king, a victorious king, a reigning king, a sovereign king, a ruling king? Let us observe in this text, in this text, two aspects of Christ's victory. Two aspects of Christ's victory. And friends, these are designed to give us confidence. The whole book of Zechariah is designed to build into the people confidence in the one who will come as king. And this is the culmination of it all. We don't need to fret. We don't need to worry. We don't need to be anxious. We don't need to be wringing our hands. But we can rest and be confident in the one who is coming as the king. In what ways, in what kind of aspects do we see Christ's victory? First of all, we see in verses 10 and 11, Christ's restorative victory, his restorative victory. And that, again, is designed to make us confident in him. Be confident in Christ's restorative victory. And in these verses, we'll see how he restores Three aspects of things that have been taken away from Israel. First of all, Israel's land will be restored. Notice verse 10. All the land will be changed into a plain from Geba to Rimmon, south of Jerusalem. All the land will be changed into a plain. Now, he's not talking about all the land of Israel. It was a fairly significantly sized piece of land, but he's talking specifically about the area of land that he has just described, starting in Geba. Geba was a Levitical city that was about six miles north of Jerusalem, and Rimmon was in the far south of the tribe of Judah. And so what he is simply saying is all of the area of Judah will be made into a plain. That word plain is a word that is actually transliterated. The actual word is, in Hebrew, Arabah. And it is an area that runs from the far north all the way down to the south of, of Israel, along the Jordan River, past the Dead Sea, all the way down into Egypt to the tip of the Red Sea. And it is arid and flat. And all of Israel will become like that. And you're saying, well, Terry... That's a swell picture, but that looks pretty rocky to me. Ah, it is. That's the mountains on the side. And up here is the flat and arid. That's the plains. That's the plains of the Arabah. And it will be like that all the way through the land. In case 
you're wondering, there's another picture from the Arabah to the mountains. And so everything, all those mountains you see in the background of that second picture, all of that will be laid flat just like in the front of that picture. And the Lord is describing here a literal transformation of the mountainous region to a flat valley. You might even remember another text that speaks very similarly about that. A voice is calling. Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness, Isaiah chapter 40, starting in verse 3. And let every valley be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low, and let the rough ground be made a plain, and the rugged terrain a broad valley. And then the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all flesh will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken." It's the same prophecy about the same event. The mountains are laid low, the valleys are lifted up, and everything is one solid plain. But that's not the only transformation. And we've seen this kind of transformation already taking place, right? We've seen God, in a sense, uncreating and recreating His world. We talked about that last time. starts when Jesus comes and His feet hit the Mount of Olives and we say, Mount of Olives, you're in the way. The people of Israel need out. Let's move them. And His feet touch the Mount of Olives and it splits east to west. The two halves of the mountain, one half moves north, the other moves south. And this vast valley is made so that the people of, of Jerusalem can leave the city to safety. So we have, we have seen this. But notice what else is going on. Verse 10, middle of the verse. The land will be changed, but Jerusalem will rise and remain on its site. So everything is laid low except for Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is elevated. And then, and then he describes how that takes place. And again, we find a similar thing again in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 2, the prophet says virtually the same thing. Verse 2, now it will come about, Isaiah 2, in the last days... The mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and it will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. So everything is laid low except Jerusalem. Jerusalem is elevated and the nation of Israel obviously comes to it and all of the other nations come as well. And then what happens in the remainder of verse 10 is we have a description of everything that is elevated, everything that is raised up. And so he says, from Benjamin's gate, as far as the place of the first gate to the corner gate, from the tower of Hananel to the king's wine presses. Now, the Benjamin's gate was apparently in the north of the city. We know it was north, but we don't know exactly where along the wall it was, but it was on the north side of the city. Been lots of conjecture about where the first gate is and lots of conjecture about what the first gate was. And frankly, we just don't know. But it's a gate that was marked out by God, and it's a location that will be included in this raising. The corner gate was on Jerusalem's western wall, probably towards the northwest side of the city. The Tower of Hananel was the northernmost portion of the city. We know that from Nehemiah chapter 3, and we also know from Nehemiah chapter 3 that the royal wine presses were far to the south of the city. So what we have is a description in this verse of the city, and he's laying out boundaries. And he's saying from north to south, from west, and it's not explicit, but probably inferring on the east side as well, the whole city will be raised up. 
And he's wanting us to see that that everything within the city is raised up. And he's meaning us by this physical description to understand. I'm not talking hypothetically. I'm not talking spiritually. I'm talking literally. That city will rise up. And it will be elevated. And denote that this is a place of prominence. So it will be prominent in the landscape. To say this is a prominent place. And what's prominent about the city of Jerusalem? The king lives here. And everyone will be forced to look up to the residence of the king. And then notice what else he says about that text, about that place. He said, Jerusalem will rise and remain. That word remain, and we're going to come across that in another verse or two, is the word that can refer to just dwelling, living, staying, remaining. And it indicates that this is the final place of Jerusalem. Jerusalem has been run over, conquered, defeated so many times over the course of history. But now on that day, it will rise up and it will not be moved from its rising up. It's its, quote unquote, final resting place. It will never be demolished. It will never be defeated. It will never be undercut, overwhelmed, overthrown. This is where Jerusalem and Jerusalem's king will stand. And the point of all this explanation for verse 10 is that when Christ returns and takes his throne, the city will take and retake all the land it was always supposed to possess. Jerusalem in the millennial kingdom will have all the land it lost in its various occupations from other armies. And not only that, it will be elevated to the prominent place, not just in Israel, but in all the world. It's also worth noting that historically and even currently, the mountains that surround Jerusalem serve as something of a buffer for them. It's the safety for Jerusalem. And on that day, the mountains will be laid low. Why? Because we don't need, they will not need physical protection from invading armies anymore. Why? Because the king has come. And he will provide their security. And that's where we go next. Not only where will Israel's land be restored, but in Christ's restoration, Israel's people will also be restored. Verse 11. People will live in it. That word live is the same word as remain and dwell in verse 10 that Zechariah used about the city of Jerusalem. It's a word of permanence. And those who have gone into captivity and those who have suffered from invaders over the centuries will never again be moved. They're fixed. They're permanent. They're safe. How safe are they? Well, he's already told us. Chapter 8, verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, when... The Lord of hosts comes to live on his holy mountain. Thus says the Lord of hosts, old men and old women will again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each man with his staff in his hand because of his age. 
And the streets of the city will be filled with boys and girls playing in the streets. In other words, the aged and the old and those who are infirm and those who have difficulty moving around won't need to worry about being trampled in the streets. They won't need to worry about being taken advantage of. They won't need to worry about being harmed. Children will be safe. You know, if you've had children in the last, uh, if you've had children recently, it's different from when you were a child, isn't it? I mean, I would get on my bike. We lived, we lived uh, uh, for several of my growing up years, we lived about two miles north of downtown Dallas. It wasn't the safest place in the world to live. And I would get on my bike on a Saturday morning and I would disappear and go right off to a friend's house and be gone. I would ride off a couple of miles to go to my friend's house. I'd be gone all day. There was no cell phone to check, no texting to send back to mom. There were... Frank, frankly, it was, it was almost a tin can and a string in order to make a phone call. Not quite that bad, but close. There was no checking in. I was gone all day, and Mom never worried. I wouldn't let my children play in the front yard. And that was 20 years ago. And on that day, the children will play in the streets. And not just will they play in the streets... Zechariah doesn't mean when he says this in verse 11, oh, there's going to be a few people in Jerusalem. No, no, no. He means Jerusalem is going to be overrun with people. He's already talked about that as well. Chapter 2, verse 4, he says, run, speak to that young man, the angel speaking, uh, saying, Jerusalem will be inhabited without walls because of the multitude of men and cattle within it. They can't build walls because there's too many people. They need to overflow beyond where the walls would be. This place is a packed out place. That had to be so encouraging for the Israelites. Remember, when they'd returned, I've already alluded to this, the city was sparsely populated even a hundred years later after Ezra when Nehemiah is rebuilding the wall, even then, a hundred years later, they had to conscript people to move back into the city. Not then. In that day, the king will be on his throne. The people will flock to the city. Chapter 8 also tells us it's not just the people of Israel that will flock to the city, but also the nations will come because the king is there. So there will be a restorative victory. The land will be restored. The people will be restored. Verse 11, end of the verse. Israel's security will be restored. The people will live in it. And there will no longer be a curse. The word curse refers to something that is under a ban. It's a prohibition. Something you're not allowed to have access to. Um, think about Joshua when think about the book of Joshua when the people are coming back into the land and and um, they defeat Jericho and you know they overrun Jericho with this massive victory and and they decide well we had such a great victory over Jericho we're just going to need a smaller contingent to go into AI and take over AI and they get slaughtered at AI and why are they slaughtered at Achan, at Ai? Because Achan took some stuff that was under the ban, things that were prohibited, and he took it and he said, that looks pretty and shiny, I want that. And he took it from himself and God judged him and the nation in that battle because he took things that were under the ban. That's what this is talking about. And it says there will no longer be anything that is under the ban. 
And there were typically things when the, when the nation of Israel would go into a land or when they were coming into their land that they were prohibited from taking. They're not supposed to take the plunder of the nations. Why? Why does God put things under the ban? He puts things under the ban because many of the things that were the valued possessions of the nations were things that were related to idol worship. And he doesn't want them to get caught up, doesn't want Israel to get caught up in idol worship and moved away from worshiping the one true God. So don't take the stuff that's going to take you away from me. And secondly, he doesn't want them to take the stuff so that they are tempted to think, well, look at all this stuff I have. I don't need God. He wants to keep them dependent on him. And so the, the wealth of the nations was banned. But on that day, the ban is lifted. Why is the ban lifted? Well, we've already seen in chapter 13, because, declares the Lord of hosts, 13.2, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land, and they will no longer be remembered and I also will move the prophets, remove the prophets and the unclean spirit from the land. In other words, I'm going to remove all the false teachers, all the false prophets, all those who would take you away from me. I'm going to remove all idolatry. I'm not just going to remove the idols. I'm going to remove the memory of the idols. So there is now nothing connected to the stuff that would lead them away in false worship because, verse 9 Just two verses earlier, chapter 14, the Lord will be the only one in His name, the only one. They only want to worship Him. There's no more temptation. So use those things with joy and delight because they won't lead you away from your worship of God anymore. And while it's not clear in this verse... It seems that this verse is being alluded to, if not even directly used, another time in Scripture. See if you remember this. And he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of its street. And on either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there will no longer be any curse for the throne of God and of the lamb will be in it and his bondservants will serve him and they will see his face and his face will be on their foreheads. That's the Apostle John, Revelation chapter 22, talking about the eternal kingdom, about heaven in the eternal future. Friends, not only are possessions removed from the ban, but the ban of sin and death are eternally removed. Everything related to sin, everything related to death will be removed and everything is restored to its Edenic condition, what it was like in the Garden of Eden. And there's nothing that is off limits. Even in the Garden of Eden, there was one tree that was off limits to, to Adam and Eve. And in that day, in that place, under that kingship, all that will be restored. And note this as well, end of verse 11. And Jerusalem will dwell in safety. If you go back to earlier parts of this book, you'll remember that there were times that the city didn't dwell in safety, that there were times that the city was in distress and there was hardship. Even just end of chapter 13, two-thirds of the people of Israel are cut off or killed. And in that day, the nation will be finally and fully safe 
from all predators. That's a consistent theme throughout the Old Testament. We don't have time to trace it this morning, but you're going to see that safety component all the way through the Old Testament. God will keep his people safe. We even saw it chapter 3 of this book, verse 10. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and under his fig tree. On that day, when, when the branch, the Messiah, is on his throne... It will be a day of safety and everyone will sit in safety under his own tree and visit with his neighbor. Friends, it's a good reminder to us that while this world is not a safe place, God does protect and God will protect. And even when we suffer, we are not experiencing anything beyond the scope of God's power. He's in control. He's got it. He's the victor. Says one commentator, When God makes a promise, His word is sure and complete security results from His mighty presence. When He says they will be safe, we can be sure they will be safe. And God will not do then what is beyond His capability now. If He can keep His people safe then, He can keep His people safe now. You're safe. Yeah, it's harsh. Yeah, there's suffering. But you're safe. I want you to notice one other aspect of this. Notice the three works of God's restoration of the nation. Land. People. Security. Land. It's talking about a physical place for the nation to inhabit. People. He's talking about a a seed, a progeny that will populate that land, His people. And they're secure. They're safe. Not just physical safety, but spiritual safety. The removal of sin and death. A removal that's not just a blessing to the nation of Israel, but a blessing also to all of the nations. Land, seed, safety. Blessing. Is that ringing any bells with you? How about this? God said to Abraham, Genesis 12, Go forth from your country, from your relatives, from your father's house, the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. And you will also be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. I'll give you a land. I'll give you a seed. I'll give you a blessing. On that day, God finally, fully restores to the land of Israel, nation of Israel, everything that God had promised way back in Genesis chapter 12. It's the final fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant and the Abrahamic promise. Now, there have been signs of fulfillment along the way. There have been initiation of some of the aspects of that fulfillment. But virtually everything Israel has received along the way has also been lost, largely through their disobedience. But on that day, all the loss will be restored and the great promise of God to the nation of Israel will be fulfilled. And it was designed... These verses were designed to give confidence to Israel. I'm going to keep my promise. You can rest. And likewise, they should make us confident as well. The world is a mess. 
Absolutely. But God is not finished. He will restore all the loss. And soon, He will be finished. And everything will be restored. Maybe this afternoon after the fellowship or tomorrow morning, just go read Revelation 21 and 22. That's the finish. That's the final restoration. This designed to give us hope, confidence that connects to exactly what's going on in this passage. Be confident in Christ the victor because he restores. Secondly, be confident in Christ's retributive victory, his retributive victory. He makes retribution. He pours out his wrath. God makes it right. And what we have in verses 12 to 15 is something of a flashback. It goes back and reviews again things that have already been alluded to in this text, but amplifies it and gives us more detail. It's actually going back to the battle of Armageddon. It's going back to verse 3. Then the Lord will go forth and fight on the, uh, fight against those nations as when he fights on the day of battle. It's going back to chapter 12, verses 2 through 9. was a, a longer explanation of the battle of Armageddon and how Christ would win that. And now he's filling in more color and a little bit more detail. And for those of you who are a little bit squeamish of stomach like I am, um, these, can be, these can be harsh verses to read. They're, they're brutal in some sense. And it reminds us of God's justice to take care of everything, including sin. Just how is it that God will make all things right? Starting in verse 12 to verse 13 and then in verse 15, God will judge all sinners Verse 13, it will come about in that day. Again, a reminder that we're talking about the day of the Lord. Remember that day, the day of the Lord is the day of judgment. Zechariah typically focuses not as much on judgment, but on the coming of the blessing of the millennial kingdom and the things that will flow from God. But in this instance, in verse 12, he's, uh, verse 12 and verse 13, he's talking about that day, that day when God will pour out his judgment. This will be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples who have gone to war against Jerusalem. And we have those people listed for us in chapter 14, verses 1 and 2, right? So God's calling all of the nations. So when he says all the peoples that have gone to war against Jerusalem, who's he talking about? He's talking about the entire world. Everybody in the world that has aligned itself against Israel, which is everyone, this is the plague with which the Lord will strike them. And that word plague is the same word that is used in Exodus chapter 9 for the plagues in Egypt as Israel was departing Egypt. And they're miraculous acts of God that are not just miraculous acts of God, but they're miraculous acts of judgment against those who are rebellious against Him. Everybody says, oh, I want to see the miracle of God. You know, not all miracles of God do you want to see. And this is one of those, or a series of them. This will be the plague. What's it going to be like, Zechariah? Their flesh will rot while they stand on their feet. While they're standing, remember, they've come to Jerusalem to fight. So they're in a position of war and battle, right? And while they're standing there, getting ready to make war, to shoot their guns, to fire their artillery against Israel. 
while they're standing there, they're rotting. Now, it's not the kind of thing that you look at your hand and you go, I wonder what that spot is. I, I didn't see. I had one of those the other day and I said to Regine, what, what is that? And it's like a little spot that's kind of dried out skin and I put some cream on it for about three days and it went away. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about decomposition. He's talking about decay. He's talking about opening a grave that's been closed for about 50 years and seeing what's inside of it. And he's saying that will happen while they're standing. Instantaneously. I'm going to show how old I am. The um, first Indiana Jones movie. I just... That image kept running through my head all week where at the end, you know, they see the Ark of the Covenant. The Nazi soldiers see the Ark of the Covenant and and you just see their faces melting off their bodies. That's what I had in view. I don't know if that's going on, but it's that sense that while they're standing there, the body's just literally rotting as if it's in a grave. What takes decades will happen in seconds. And notice that the, the noun peoples is plural, but the, the pronoun is singular. And he means by that all the peoples, every single one. So while it's corporate, all the nations, it's also individual. There's no individual that will escape this judgment from God. It gets worse. And their eyes will rot in their socket. Same thing. Same decomposition. Not just their bodies, not just the skin and the flesh, but their eyes are rotting. And it, the eyesight refers to perception, right? An ability to see and evaluate, but not just physically, but spiritually. And so they not only can't see physically, but it's an indicator that they no longer see spiritually either. And not only are their eyes rotting away again instantly, but their tongues rot in their mouth. The organism that was used to pridefully proclaim their victory, they showed up in Jerusalem and said, we're going to decimate these people once and for all. In an instant, it's rotting, decayed. They can't fight because they can't stand. They can't see to fight and they can't use their tongue to call for help. They're utterly decimated. And it happens like that. Does that sound familiar? Revelation 19. From his mouth, speaking of the Messiah, comes a sharp sword that with it he may strike down the nations And he will rule them with a rod of iron and he treads the winepress of the fear, wrath of God, the Almighty. In a moment, he treads them and it's just like stepping on grapes and they're gone. And it's just kind of a gruesome at the end of Revelation 19, isn't it? I I didn't hear any gasps, but I did hear some. (gasps) And I saw an angel and he cried out with a loud voice saying to all the birds which fly in the mid-heaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God. And isn't that an interesting contrast to the supper of God that's had in heaven with the saints earlier in that chapter? 
There are two meals in that chapter. One you want to partake of, the other one you don't. One you get to eat, one you get to be eaten. And who gets eaten? The flesh of kings, commanders, mighty men, horses, those who sit on them, the flesh of all men, free men, slaves, small, great, everyone who's in opposition to God, they all get eaten. Why? Because the flesh is rotten. The, rest is, the flesh is decayed. They're buzzard food instantly. Honestly, the picture is revolting. It is said of these plagues by one commentator, they will be a living death. What's interesting about this is if you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 28 and the Mosaic Covenant, God promised that these very things would happen to the nation of Israel if they rebelled against Him. And now He's taking that promise to Israel and He's applying it to the nations. It's not just Israel that suffers the consequences of God's wrath, but the nations as well. That's verse 12. It will come about in that day, verse 13, that a great panic from the Lord will fall on them. You've got to imagine, you see, you see your, your buddy standing next to you start melting, and you've got to imagine that, that causes some terror and panic, right? But there's another kind of panic that comes not just from within as momentarily seeing what's happening before they're decimated as well, but a panic that comes from the Lord. So God gives them a spirit of panic. This isn't just accidental. It's not just happenstance. This is divine wrath and judgment from God. Their panic. And their panic on that day is such that they'll grab the neighbor and they'll slay the neighbor. They're just fighting to preserve themselves and they end up killing themselves. It's not unlike the plague that was experienced by the Philistines when they received the Ark of the Covenant. They think, oh great, we've got, we've got Israel's God now too. That didn't work out so well for them. And it didn't take but a few days and they said, you know what, we don't want this God anymore. Let's send Him off somewhere else. The Ark of the Covenant. And the plague is not just against the people, not just in their panic, but notice verse 15, and so this plague will likewise be on the horse and the mule and the camel and the donkey, camel and the donkey, and all the cattle will be, that will be in those camps. Everything that they have. Don't just think, oh, That's kind of weird. It's all the animals. It's not just animals. When Ezra recounts the coming back of the nation back into the land from the captivity to Babylon, notice how he recounts it and how he accounts for everybody that comes back in the land. Ezra chapter 2, he says in verse um, 66, he's just recounted all the the different people and all the different leaders and and the priests and the female servants and the male servants. And then he says this, verse 66, And their horses were 736, and their mules 245, and their camels 435, and their donkeys 6,720. And he's not just keeping a tax record. That's not the point. Why do you recount all that stuff? Because that indicates wealth. And it doesn't just indicate wealth, it indicates power. It, it indicates strategic ability to defend and protect and to fight. And when he says it's not just the people in Zechariah 14 who experience the plague, but also all of the animals, he's saying everything that they depend on to protect themselves and to slay the nation of Israel, every bit of it is going to be removed. Their own physical ability and their own strategic arm power and weaponry will be removed. All of it is gone. Everything that they depended on will be destroyed.
God's judgment on that day is a reminder to us of at least two realities. One is that God is jealous to protect His chosen people and He will preserve them even with severity. He will preserve. He will protect. He will keep because they're His. Don't mess with His stuff. Maybe you've had children in the house and the one child goes to another child, right, and borrows something. And the other child comes and tells you, Mom, he's messing with my stuff. Don't mess with God's people. He will pour out his wrath. This judgment is also a reminder of God's hatred of and His hostility against sin. Romans 12 says that God says, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. We can take comfort in the fact that God will repay all sin. He will. And if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, Just because God hasn't done anything dramatic to pour out His wrath and anger against you doesn't mean He doesn't care. It means He's giving you time to repent. He's letting the leash out a little bit, not to let you run away from Him. You're on the leash, my friend. He's letting it out to give you an opportunity to turn around on your own and come to Him and say, I need help. Will you save me? I'm a rebel against you. Will you save me? Will you be merciful to me? I can't do it on my own. Will you save me? Don't think that just because he's not judged doesn't mean he doesn't care. He does and he will judge. And my friend, if you're not a believer this morning, God will not overlook your sin. But there is hope for you. If you humble yourself, And turn to Christ the Messiah in faith and say, will you save me? He will save you. This is the very thing that will happen to the nation of Israel. He says in 1210, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. So they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. Oh, friend, you were saved in the same way. Look to the one who was pierced. Look to the one who died on the cross and you will be saved. You've got to turn away from your sin. You've got to say, I don't want this anymore. Will you take it away from me? And will you go to the one then who can take it away and him only? Oh, friend, God is serious about sin. And he will judge all sinners. There's a second aspect to his retribution, his retributive victory. And that is, verse 14, he will restore all plunder. Now, it's very clear in this passage all the way through that God is acting, right? 14.3, God will go forth. God will fight. The Lord will be king, verse 9, and reign on his throne. You go back earlier in this book, it is really clear that it is God acting. It is God preserving. It is God who is bringing about the preservation of his people. But elsewhere, both here and in other passages in this section, God also says that He's going to use Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem to also accomplish His purposes in bringing about the the restitution of Jerusalem. 
And here that we, that's what we find exactly in verse 14. And Judah also will fight at Jerusalem. So God will fight and he will equip Judah also to fight. And what they will do in their fighting, notice he says in verse 14, all the wealth of all the surrounding nations will be gathered. What kind of stuff are you talking about? Gold and silver and garments. <laughs> and I read that and I had to do a double take, right? Garments, like, I mean, I don't know that people are going to want what's in my closet, right? Why, why the garments? What's the big deal about the garments? Because the garments... The fancier the garments, the more the wealth. They were an indicator of position, of power, of utility, to affect change over others, to rule over others. And they will take all of that. They'll take all of their wealth, all of their position, and it will be theirs. And notice they don't just take some of it. They will take it, end of the verse, in great abundance, massive quantities. The conquest is over. And isn't it interesting? At the beginning of the chapter, 14, 1 and 2, the nations are coming in to plunder Israel, right? We're going to take Israel. We're going to decimate Israel. We're going to destroy and we're going to get all of Israel's wealth for ourselves. And God said, uh, not so fast. I have a different plan. And he uses Israel to bring about the preservation of Israel and bring them back everything that they need. Oh, friends, these verses affirm that God will bring back on that day and put back everything to its rightful place. The redeemed will be back and in fellowship with God and in his presence. All that belong to God and his people will be possessed by him and by them. All unrighteousness will be put down and punished and Christ will be king and Christ will will be victor. Christ the King is coming and He will be fully victorious. Now we see that in this chapter, but you don't need to see that in this chapter only to know that Christ is victorious. This is the second coming. We've already seen His first coming. And in His first advent, He also was victorious then. When was Christ victorious in His first advent? He was victor when he bested Satan in the wilderness of temptation. He was victor whenever he bound Satan with his power. He was victor every time he cast demons out of individuals. He was victor every time he performed a miracle, healing someone who was under some kind of disease or reordering or ordering creation. He was victor when he prevented Satan from carrying out his plan at the crucifixion until he was ready for it. And he was victor when he died of his own accord, saying, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he bowed his head and died. To the very last, he was victor. And he will be again. Christ the King is victor. He always has been. And he will be again in that day. Be confident of Him. 